If you have your Bibles with you, I invite your attention, please, to the book of Romans, the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. We're focusing primarily on verse 31, but including verses 31 through 39. I trust that you brought your copy of God's Word with you today, and if so, you can find your place there. If not, we do have a copy of the Bible in the hymn rack in front of you. It is of the same translation that I read from, the New American Standard. And so Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 31, today's message entitled, If God is for us, who is against us? And this is another message in our series of following the word if. We've been looking at various verses of scripture throughout the Bible that include the word if. And so today we're looking on this passage of scripture, if God is for us, who is against us? So look at it with me, please, beginning with verse 31, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If God be for us, who is against us? Now remember, the word if I shared with you at the beginning of this series of sermons can also be translated since. So we could go back and reread it. Since God is for us, who is it that can be against us? It can also be translated because, because God is for us, who can be against us? So uh, I like the way the, the Amplified Bible expands this verse of scripture. It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be our foe if God is on our side? It's encouraging to me personally, and I'm sure to you as well, to know that God is for you. God is for me. He's not against me. He loves me. He cares for me. He died for me on the cross. The same can be said of you. And so since God is for you, he's on your side. Who can be against us? Now, I know that uh, the message, which is a paraphrase of the scripture, some of you have that. I was reading it this week, and let me just share with you. Just listen to it if you don't have a copy of the message with you this morning. 
but it's just in clear language, no question at all as to what Paul is saying. This is the way the message, which is a paraphrase of the scripture reads. With God on our side, how can we lose? If God did not hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he would not gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare to tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen people? Who would even dare to point a finger at us? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God this very moment sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. No trouble, no hard times, no hatred, no hunger, no homelessness, no bullying threats, no backstabbing, not even the worst sins can separate us from the love of God. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. To think of it, that God loves you so much, to use the expression that Jesus embraces you. He puts his loving, strong arms around you and he says, I care for you and I am for you. I am on your side. Now there's one word that's found only in one place in the Bible that refers, I believe, to Jesus. And that comes out of the Old Testament in the book of, uh, uh, of Isaiah. Uh, in the book of, uh, Isaiah. And that is the word champion, champion. Have you ever thought of Jesus being your champion? The word champion, according to the dictionary, means one who wins first place or first prize in a competition, one that is clearly superior, an ardent defender or supporter of a cause or a person, one who fights for you, one who is your warrior. Now, one place in the Bible where the word champion is used is over in the book of 1 Samuel, and it is in reference to Goliath. You remember Goliath, the, the giant who, uh, whom David uh, confronted and conquered? Uh, he was a pretty good-sized fellow. According to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 17, he stood nine feet and nine inches tall. He had a helmet that was made of bronze, most soldiers had one made of leather, but his was made of bronze. He had um, uh, armor on his body, uh, kind of a place there like what we call layers, much like you would a shingles on a, on a roof where you'd have one layer right after the other. Uh, it weighed 125 pounds. Can you imagine carrying a, a, a vest of metal that weighed 125 pounds? He had a spear the spearhead alone weighed 17 pounds. And the Bible says of Goliath that he was the champion of the Philipp, uh, Philippians, uh, Philippines, excuse me, <laughs> it might have been the Philippians, but of, of the Philistines. He was the champion of the Philippines. Now over in the book of Isaiah, the uh, 19th chapter of Isaiah, 
Isaiah prophesied that Jesus Christ would be our Savior and our champion. Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 20. He will send them, he's talking about the people of Egypt of all people. Uh, after all, we saw this weekend happening to, to the, the people in France and Paris and those hundreds of people that lost their lives and out of Syria and all those, all those areas. The, the Egyptians are, are Muslim in, in their faith. Uh, and yet the Bible predicts that the time will come, as we sang a moment ago, Clay, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess of things in heaven, things in the earth, things under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the day is going to come when every person, including all of the Muslims and the radical terrorists and everybody else, will bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that doesn't mean they're going to be saved. It just means they're going to be forced to admit that God was right and that Jesus Christ is his son and Jesus died for them. And they will wish they had accepted him as Lord and Savior. But in that day, Isaiah prophesied that the Muslims, the Egyptians will turn to Jesus and will confess him and, they will, and that Jesus will be their Savior and their champion. And Jesus, I think we can claim, you know, with the same promise for you and for me. Jesus is my champion. He is my hero. He is my savior, my Lord. And he loves me and he cares for me and he is on my side. He is for me and likewise you. You can say the very same thing. Now, as we think about if God be for us, who can be against us? There are four or five ideas that are expressed for you and outlined for you on your, on your bulletin. For the believer in Jesus Christ, there is no opposition. No opposition, not one, not single person. Now, if Paul had simply said, as Jonathan said on the announcement this morning, if he had just said, who can be against us? Well, they'd be lined up. There are all kinds of people who are against Christians. But that's not what it says. It says, if, because, since God is for us, who can be against us? And so the question is, if, God is for us. And what a difference that little word if makes. In other words, if anyone is able to take away our salvation, they would have to be greater than God himself. So the difference, of course, is that God is for us and this is our confidence that we have. Paul's message is clear. If we were not able to do anything at all to save ourselves or to recommend ourselves, Lord, save us, we deserve it then what could we possibly do to, to ruin God's work in our lives? None whatsoever. If God be for us, who can be against us? So there's no opposition, no opposition. Secondly, there's no deprivation. In verse 32, it says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Deprivation means to, to be without something, uh, to have it taken away from you. Well, if God did not spare even his only begotten son, when you remember Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, did it three times. And yet each time he said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours and so God did not spare his own son. God allowed and sent, foreordained before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would go to the cross. 
If God would not spare his son, do you think that he would spare anything else from us? That he loves us enough that he's not going to do that? Over in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a couple of stories in order to illustrate the importance of prayer and how that God will answer and respond to whatever the needs are that we have in our lives. One of those stories involved a man who went to his next door neighbor in the middle of the night. It was the midnight hour and he knocked on the door and he said to the man, um, I've got a, a guest in my home. He came unexpectedly and uh, the custom, of course, as you know, in those days, they were responsible for feeding them. And he's knocking on this door. He says, I don't have enough food. Would you get up and give me uh, bread so that I can, I can feed my guest? And uh, at first the man said, no, it's past, you know, bedtime. We're in bed. You're disturbing us. Go away. But he kept on knocking. And Jesus said it was because he was persistent that he wouldn't give up. And so the man got up and gave him what he wanted and what he needed. And, and he was telling the story, well, if, if that man was willing to do that for his neighbor because he was persistent, don't you think God is willing to give you what you need and what you ask for? Yes, he will. He also went on to tell another illustration about a father. He says, if you are a father and you have a son and he comes to you and he says, I'm hungry, would you give uh, some fish so that I can eat, he, he said, would, would you give him a snake? Or if he asked for some eggs, would you give him a scorpion? Why no, you would give him what he needs and what he wants and what he's asking for. And if you as a human being would be that compassionate about these illustrations that he gave, he said, don't you think God much more would also be willing to give to you whatever it is that you need in your life? Paul says that my God will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So there will be no deprivation. There will be nothing lacking in your life because you're a child of God. He's not going to withhold what's good and what's right for you. The third thing is no accusation. Look at Romans 8:33. Who will bring a charge against his elect? Now, of course, we know that the main accuser of the Christian is Satan himself. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 10, that Satan is our accuser. There are a couple of examples of this in the Bible. One comes out of the book of Zechariah. If you have your Bibles with you, just turn to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. It's close to the end of the book. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, right before Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah is the next to the last book. Zechariah chapter 3. In the third chapter of the book of Zechariah, you have a, a, an occasion when Joshua, not the one who led Israel to conquer the Holy Land, but the high priest, Joshua, he's standing before the throne of God. And at his side is Satan. And Satan is accusing him. Now look at it, Zechariah chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now who is the angel of the Lord? I believe that it is none other than the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever you find the expression in the Old Testament, the, the angel of the Lord, that's a reference to Jesus, Okay. So I believe that this is Jesus. This is the scene is in heaven. 
Joshua the high priest is standing there before the throne of God. And, and uh, Jesus, the, the angel of the Lord is there and Satan is there. So look at it in verse one. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to do what? Accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from Joshua. And again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festive robes. So this is a scene in heaven where Lucifer, Satan, is accusing Joshua, the high priest, of being unworthy to stand in the presence of the Lord. And what does the Lord say? Take those filthy garments off of him, which is an Old Testament way of saying remove his sins and give him the robe of righteousness so that he can stand before me. And so the Lord Jesus is, you might say, his, uh, uh, his lawyer. You go over to the epistle of 1 John and and uh, John reminds us that we have an advocate for us uh, who, who represents us in heaven. And uh, an advocate would be another way of saying a lawyer. And he comes to your defense and he defends you. He stands up for you. This is what the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, is doing for Zacharias. He is standing up for him. Yes, he's a filthy sinner and he's got filthy garments on, but those have been taken off of him and he has festive robes on him. You remember that's exactly what happened to the prodigal son when he returned home. The father welcomed him, embraced him, accepted him back, loved on him, hugged him, kissed him, said, go kill the fatted calf, go get the garments and take the filthy ones off of him, put a, a new robe on him, put rings on his fingers and shoes on his feet. This is my son who was dead and now is alive. He was lost and he's been found. And, and they celebrated. They celebrated. There's another example of this. And of course, this is in the book of Job. So just turn back to the book of Job right before the Psalms. And uh, you see another example, and you see Satan again. Satan is the accuser. And so when he appears before the Lord, he accuses uh, Job of honoring and serving the Lord only because of what the Lord has done for him, blessed him. So in the book of Job, chapter 1, look at verse 9. Job 1, verse 9. The Lord has asked Satan, said, what have you been doing? What do you think about my man Job? And this was Satan's response, Job 1, verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, does he fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So what Satan is doing here, he's accusing Job. The only reason Job's loyal to you is because you've blessed him. You, you remove the hedge of protection away from him and he'll curse you to your face. Go on also in chapter 2 of Job. Job chapter 2, look at verses 5 and 6. Again, uh, Satan appears before the Lord and he is accusing uh, Job still of uh, faithfully serving the Lord because the Lord has protected him. So Job chapter 2, verse 5. However, uh, he said, Satan says, however, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And so the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. So again, Lucifer, the Satan, the devil, 
He is accusing Zacharias. He is accusing uh, Job. And he will accuse you before the throne of grace to say the only reason why you're faithful to God and the only reason you, you love Jesus is because he's blessed you. And of course, you and I both know that that's not true. And so Jesus will stand uh, before uh, the Lord and is standing before the Lord and praying for us, interceding for us and representing us and saying to the Father, I died for that person. I died for that person. I love him, care for her and so forth. So there are no accusations, none whatsoever. And then number four is there's no condemnation, no condemnation. Who is the one who condemns? Go back to Romans chapter eight and verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is the one who died. Yes, rather who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us. So who's going to condemn us? There are at least three or four reasons why you will not be condemned when you stand before the Lord. One is because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in your place. He took all of your sins upon himself and became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And in the book of Romans, I love the book of Romans. I guess if I was forced to choose one chapter out of the Bible that is as more meaningful to me than any other, it would have to be Romans chapter eight. It is a golden ring. It begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. And in between, you've got the eternal security of the believer. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. No condemnation. You will never, if you are a child of God, if you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will never hear the Lord say to me on the judgment day, depart from me, I never knew you. And I've said to you time and time before, I think the saddest words that a person could ever hear would be for him to stand before the Lord God Almighty on the day of judgment and him to say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. Never knew you. You'll never hear that say. You know, we have a law in our land called double jeopardy. You can't be tried for the same crime twice. So once you've been acquitted, pronounced guiltless and innocent, you can never stand before any judge in the land and, and be condemned and tried for the, for the same crime twice. You can't do it. Jesus, when he died on the cross of Calvary, died in your place. The penalty has already been paid for the crime of sin that you and I have committed and are committing. And so I'll never have to answer to God for my sins again because Jesus, with his shed blood, washed my sins away and my debt is paid in full. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus because when Jesus died on the cross, he died for you. Not only because of his crucifixion, but because also of his resurrection. Turn in your Bibles to in the book of Romans to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25. But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead... He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So to be credited with something means that it's a, a, a business accounting procedure. Uh, when they credit you for something, they put it on your list and say, this is for you. Uh, this, this is yours. It's credited to you. And he says, when Jesus died on the cross, he credited his death for your sins. 
You'll never be judged for your sins again. He, he, God the Father, he says in verse 25, turned Jesus over and delivered him to be crucified because of your transgressions. Transgressions means those times when you deliberately and willfully disobeyed the laws of God. And Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for your transgressions and God raised him up for your justification. You see, God is a holy God. He cannot allow and will not allow one sin to go um, uh, excused. Uh, somebody has to pay for your sin. And uh, in order for him to be a judge as well as a justifier, Jesus died on the cross and received your judgment. And because Jesus Christ experienced and received your judgment, the Father can justify you. He will treat you and pronounce you just as if you had never sinned. That's the meaning of the word justification. Just repronounce it just as if you had never sinned. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, he begins at that very moment to treat you just as if you had never committed one single sin. And so you're safe and secure in the Lord and you'll never, never lose your salvation. If God is for you, who can be against you? Crucifixion, resurrection, and then, of course, exaltation, exaltation. Now, by this, I'm, I'm referring to um, uh, the exaltation of Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, and, but in fact, uh, just take your Bible. We're going to the new, stay in the New Testament. Go, go to the book of Hebrews. And while you're turning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1 and also chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, in the Old Testament, you have the, the worship of the Lord uh, by uh, the tabernacle. On the day of atonement, uh, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on the, on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. He would do this once a year. If you'll go back and reread all of the furniture that goes into the tabernacle, into the temple of worship that they had there, you have the the, the altar, you have the uh, lampstand with the a, with a, a lamps burning there. You have the, the table of showbread. You have behind the, the veil, the Ark of the Covenant and everything. You'll not find a chair there. There's nothing for the priest to sit on. There's nothing for the high priest to sit on. Why? Because it was an ongoing uh, act of worship and sacrifice that had to be offered. Their work was never finished. But it says that when Jesus Christ entered, uh, evidently there is a pattern, the model of the Ark of the Covenant and of the, the tabernacle of worship in heaven because it says that the tabernacle that was in the wilderness was patterned after that which was in heaven. But when Jesus ascended to heaven after he was raised from the dead, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Why? Because no other sacrifice was necessary. Jesus paid the ultimate price, the complete price. There'll never be another crucifixion, never be another cross of Calvary again. Jesus died once for all and forever, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now look at it in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1, 3. Talking about Jesus, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Talking about Jesus being the exact rep uh, reputation, representation of God the Father. He opposed all things by the word of his power. When he had made a purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. Now, in Hebrews chapter 10, 
He explains it a little further in verses 11 and 12. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12 says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So he completed the work. You remember when Jesus died on the cross, what was his final word? Father, it's finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. So he completed it on the cross of Calvary. And so because of that, according to the book of Philippians, God the Father has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name that will bow before him and confess him. The fourth reason why we have no uh, condemnation is his intercession. Because as our high priest in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, it says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So what is he doing right now, this very moment? I mean, this very second, as we look at our clocks and say, Preacher, hurry up, time's running out. At this very second, Jesus Christ is the right hand of the Father, and he's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's interceding for you and for me on the cross of Calvary. We'll never be condemned. We'll never have anybody to stand up and point an accusing finger at us because of what Jesus has done and is doing. The fifth and final thing has to do with separation. Verses 35 through 36, he says that there will be no separation. Now look at it in your Bible. He, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to drive a wedge between us and him? Will tribulation, distress, or persecution? Tribulation means to be squeezed and in a tight spot. Distress uh, means to be confined to something. Uh, persecution, of course, means that uh, somebody pursues you to do harm to you. Famine, of course, comes oftentimes uh, after persecution. Nakedness doesn't mean that you run around without any clothes on. It just means that what clothing you do have is not adequate enough. And then, of course, peril. Uh, that means that, that you are in harm's way. And then the sword, of course, means death. Now, Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8. And these things that he's listing here that could separate us and do harm to us, Paul experienced every one of them. Every one of them. Over in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. Listen to what Paul says. 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Now we talk about Jesus being before he was crucified, was whipped. And how terrible that was. Paul says it happened to me five times. Somebody strapped him to a post, stripped him of his clothes and beat him, whipped him five times. Then in verse 25, it says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. In other words, he didn't have a life raft. He just floated around. I guess what he'd have some kind of... Uh, a piece of wood or something that he grabbed hold of, but for a day and a night, he says, I floated around in the ocean. Had nobody there to rescue me until they finally came along and got me. So a night and a day, I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys. Now, you have verse 26. Eight times in one verse, my translation uses the word danger. Danger. 
that he says that he, that he was uh, inflicted with. Notice in verse 26. I've been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my in intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, I was under the, the king and was guarding the city of the uh, Damascians in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. In other words, I escaped that punishment because somebody let me down out the window in a basket with a rope tied to it. And I was able to escape. All of these things, Paul said, I've experienced. So don't say to me, I don't know that God will deliver me. Now, when, when he says in the passage, if God is for us, who can be against us? He is not saying that we'll never suffer persecution. He's not saying that you're going to be exempt from heartache and trouble and trials. He's just saying when those things do come, they're not going to get the best of you. God is for you. And you're going to end up in the end being victorious. God and you make a majority. God loves you, he cares about you, and he is for you. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey tells the story about an Irish priest who on a walking tour of a rural country parish sees an old peasant kneeling by the side of the road and he's praying. And this old gentleman, this, this peasant fellow, uh, is praying and this priest sees him and he's impressed with what he sees and what he hears. And the priest says to this peasant, you must be very close to God. And the peasant looks up from his praying. He thinks for a moment and then he smiles. Yes, God's very fond of me. God is very fond of you. He loves you. He cares about you. And he's for you. He's on your side. Let's bow together. What encouraging words these are, Lord, of the Apostle Paul, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who reminds us again of this wonderful truth, the beautiful words, if, because, and since God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the eternal security of the believer. Thank you for the comfort that it brings to our hearts to know that we'll never be separated from you. Nothing, nothing can separate us from you. We thank you and praise you for it. I pray now for our time of invitation that if there's someone here today who needs to trust you as Lord and Savior, Holy Spirit of God, perform your work of conviction and of conversion and give them the courage to step out and to come forward and make it public that we might rejoice with them as well. If there are others here today who stand on the verge of making decisions and keeping with your will for their lives, we welcome them and encourage them in Christ's name, in whose name I pray. Amen.
Clay's going to come and lead us in our hymn of invitation. And if God is leading you to make your decision today, please come forward as we stand and sing.